Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I've got to say, I am quite starstruck uh, to be sitting here on the Google campus with you. Um, you know, I was at the Scaled Machine Learning Conference uh, Saturday where you had a chance to speak, and I didn't realize this until Reza mentioned it in your intro, but there's a whole Quora page of uh, Jeff Dean facts, including things like compilers don't warn Jeff, Jeff warns compilers. You know, Jeff occasionally... Uh, compiles his code just to see if there are bugs in the compiler. Uh, and my favorite, uh, Jeff Dean doesn't actually exist. He's really an AI that was created by Jeff Dean. So you'll have to excuse me if I ramble uh, because I am starstruck. But uh, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved and interested in ML and AI? Sure. So... Um... You know, I've always been interested in computing, uh, and I moved around a lot as a child. So I went to 11 schools in 12 years. Oh, my like goodness. Several different continents. I lived in Hawaii, Boston, Uganda, Boston, Arkansas, Hawaii, Minnesota, Somalia, Minnesota, Atlanta, and then back to Minnesota for college. And then... And was this, like, were you a, an army brat or something like that? Uh, my dad did tropical disease research and epidemiology. Okay. My mom was a med medical anthropologist. Okay. So... Uh, and they like to move, so I moved. Nice. Um, and then when I arrived at University of Minnesota as an undergrad, uh, just before doing a senior thesis, I took a course on parallel and distributed computing. Okay. And then I worked with the professor who taught me that uh, to do a senior thesis on parallel training of neural nets. Okay. Because I sort of, at that time, uh, people were very interested in sort of neural nets as a interesting uh, abstraction for solving problems. And at that time... It seemed like they could do cool things on toy problems, but not much on very large scale problems that people cared about. Okay. And I thought maybe if we could get like a 60x speed up on a 64 processor machine, we could do much bigger problems. And so I worked on some algorithms for that. Uh, but as it turned out, we needed like a million times more compute, not 60x. <laughs> uh, so you had to wait that one And out. so I sort of said, oh, filed neural nets away, away as kind of an interesting thing, but then went off and did a lot of other work. I eventually went on to grad school, did compiler optimization research, uh, then came to digital equipments research labs in Palo Alto and worked on a variety of things, including information retrieval on the web, uh, you know, profiling systems, various things like that, mm -hmm. and eventually came to Google in 1999 uh, uh, when we were a fairly small company. We were all kind of wedged in a small office on University Avenue above what's now the T-Mobile store. Um, <laughs> And uh, started working on sort of large-scale distributed systems for sort of core Google products and sort of uh, worked first on our, our first advertising system and then spent many years working on uh, sort of Google's distributed search systems, including the ranking system and also the crawling, indexing, and query serving systems. Okay. Uh, and a ton of other stuff. Uh, MapReduce? Yes. So then... Uh, Kind of towards the end of working on the search system, uh, my colleague Sanjay Gamawat and I uh, and some other people um, have started working on sort of core infrastructure systems for dealing with large amounts of data. How mm -hmm. can you efficiently process large amounts of data on sort of a collection of unreliable computers? Uh, Sanjay and I came up with this MapReduce abstraction in the context of sort of rewriting our crawling and indexing system where you want to go from having a bunch of raw pages on disk that you've crawled mm -hmm. to actually having all the data structures built for serving Google queries. And there's a whole bunch of stages there that involve processing the pages and like doing things like extracting all the links from the pages and building a link graph and right. uh, identifying the language of each page. And conceptually, they're all pretty simple, but when you're trying to deal with making them reliable computations across lots of machines, if you sort of individually conflate the sort of low-level mechanisms for reliability and the high-level thing you're trying to do, which is figure out what language each page is in or extract mm -hmm. links, it becomes kind of complicated to do. But if you have this nice abstraction, which MapReduce seemed to provide, uh, you can actually separate those and build an implementation 
of the MapReduce abstraction that allows you to sort of deal with lots of things in there like uh, reliability and automatic parallelization across however many machines you want to throw mm-hmm. at the problem dealing with stragglers so even if a machine doesn't die right. it might be running slowly because it's doing other stuff uh you know on a shared environment uh and then you can express a lot of these fairly simple computations using fairly simple abstractions of map and reduce right right one thing i'm curious about is um a little bit of a history of machine learning and AI at Google, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, leading up to TensorFlow and some of the things you're doing around uh, the TPU. Um, but what's your earliest, um, you know, exposure? What was your earliest exposure to ML here at Google? So we've been using collectively Google, uh, machine learning at Google for quite a long time. So, and you can argue that yeah. the, the page rank, the kind of the beginning of Google is machine learning, right? Right. So across lots and lots of our products, we use machine learning in, in various ways uh, until maybe about six or seven years ago, typically not deep neural networks, but simpler methods like um, logistic regression or uh, sometimes simple counting-based statistics uh, methods for estimating probabilities of various things. Um, and you know, so we've done, had a long history of that and built systems around how do we actually scale those kinds of systems to you know very large amounts of data. Uh, some of them are embedded in, in core products that are pretty important. Uh, and then about uh, seven years ago or so, um, we started to look into how to use deep neural nets and see if we could make those scale to uh, problems we cared about, you know, very large scale problems because um, there were signs of various successes in using neural nets for things like speech and vision uh, on a small scale mm-hmm. that were starting to appear in the academic literature uh, as sort of the beginning of the revival of neural nets mm-hmm. happening in kind of 2007, 2008. Right. And so in 2011, we started to really put look at this in earnest uh, within Google uh, Andrew Ng was spending a day a week at Google sort of consulting, and I happened to bump into him in the micro kitchen and said, oh, what are you up to? <laughs> and sort of he said, oh, I'm kind of figuring out what I'm going to work on. And but, but at Stanford, you know, I'm starting to look at how neural nets can solve different kinds of problems, and they're starting to be successful. And I'm like, oh, really? I did my undergrad thesis years ago on those. And, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and, and so we kind of got excited about trying to put together a small effort to scale neural net training to build very big neural nets and mm-hmm. see what we could do with them. Simply because, you know, we felt like if they're having success on small scale, then building bigger ones would be even better. Nice. Uh, and did the work on TensorFlow lead uh, or follow directly from that? Where, where did, how did that evolve? Yeah, so the the way this this happened was we actually started building a different software system called uh, Disbelief for uh, Distributed uh, Belief, and also as a joke because people didn't think this would really work out. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I, I called it Disbelief. <laughs> um, and uh, basically that was a sort of uh, programming abstraction for neural nets that uh, wasn't, in retrospect, it, it wasn't as flexible as we wanted it to be, but it would allow us to express uh, kind of in the same way that MapReduce was a programming API. This was an API for neural nets. It was sort of layer-based uh, implementations where you'd have a forward method and a backwards method. And so you could compose together layers of, of neural nets with different kinds of computations in each layer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was good for expressing things like convolutional neural nets or LSTMs or feed-forward neural nets, those kinds of things. And we started applying them to computer vision. So we did some work on unsupervised uh, learning with autoencoders for vision problems. Okay. Um, and uh, we actually didn't have GPUs in our data center at the, that time. So to get enough computation, we ended up parallelizing these computations across large numbers of CPUs because that's what we had in our data center at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we trained a neural net with like 2 billion parameters at that time, which was quite a lot, uh, and um, used kind of 16,000 cores for a week to train a pretty large-scale autoencoder and mm-hmm. found that it could do interesting things like, despite being trained on completely unlabeled data, 
some of the neurons at the top levels of this of these uh, of this large neural net started to be responsive to things that uh, resembled sort of high level human explainable features, things like you know a kind of uh, cat like face or mm-hmm. the back of a person kind of thing. Um, and so it's clearly learning interesting high-level concepts despite right. not having any labeled data. Mm. So you kind of started with disbelief. What were the the challenges or issues with disbelief that led you to say, we need something new and better? <laughs> I mean, I think we realized that this sort of forward-backward uh, computation fit some kinds of expression uh, of machine learning models we wanted to be able to express, but it wasn't as general purpose as we would like. And so mm-hmm. we looked at things like Theano, which was a, a open source package from University of Montreal mm-hmm. that had a more of a, a sort of auto-differentiating graph-based interpretation of how to express these computations. And um, we sort of used that as a rough programming model, but uh, focused on making this sort of a high-performance scalable implementation. And also we wanted to be able to run this in a variety of different environments. So we've always wanted the TensorFlow system to support running machine learning wherever machine learning wants to run, which is a mm-hmm. lot of places these days. Right, right. So you want to run it on things like mobile phones. You want to run it on a desktop machine with, you know, with or without a few GPU cards. You want to run in a data center environment where you have lots of machines, each with maybe perhaps several GPU cards. You want to support kind of new and emerging uh, hardware uh, accelerators for machine learning that are appearing both on the data center side and high power environments, but also in sort of things like mobile phones are starting to get kind of these machine learning accelerators. You mm-hmm. want to make sure you do take advantage of those as well. Yeah. On the topic of machine learning accelerators, um, Google's now in the second version of the TPU. The first version was focused on inference. <laughs> the second version added, you know, training capability. I'm, I'm curious what your uh, what your general thoughts are on the the acceleration space? I mean, you've noted a couple of times now at NIPS and this presentation you were at, I'm sure other places that you know you when you look into your crystal ball, you you see that it's foggy in terms of what we're going to need from accelerators, mm-hmm. and so that leads you to some specific. Um, that leads you to think that we should be a little bit more open ended in terms of where we're going uh, with hardware accelerators. Uh, you can do a better job of, right. you know, clarifying your position on these. Yeah. So I would say about four years ago, we realized that neural nets were going to be a really big sort of feature in lots of our computation at Google. Yeah. And if you look at trying to run all the inference we wanted on the existing data center machines with CPUs in them, that was probably not going to cut it because mm-hmm. we wanted to, for example... I did some very rough back of the envelope calculations and said, okay, if every user talks to their phone for three minutes a day and we need to do speech recognition on that, then that alone would mean we need to double the number of data centers we had at a very rough level. And that sounded kind of untenable. Mm -hmm. Um, So we realized that inference was going to be the first important thing to tackle from an acceleration standpoint because... um, any services where you have uh, a growing number of users or a lot of users already, inference is a much bigger cost than training typically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and inference is also a much simpler problem to tackle from an acceleration standpoint because typically you can get a single chip to do inference for a whole model. And then if you need more capacity, you can just stamp out more copies of that chip or right. more, more cards that you insert in a machine or a variety or a bunch of machines kind of embarrassingly um, parallel it's embarrassingly parallel right. you know, each chip can handle inference for uh, for the model in yeah. you know some modest batch size and you just kind of go from there and so the first version of the tpus that we built was an inference only accelerator really uh it supports 8-bit quantized integer arithmetic uh there's a paper in isca which is a big computer architecture conference that describes that in in more detail if readers or listeners are are interested in the details, but um, we tackled that first because that would help us with scaling and using neural nets in many more places in our products. Mm-hmm. So now whenever you do a query 
or you, uh, you know, you're touching uh, inference accelerators in uh, many ways. So for search ranking, for various pieces of other uh, other aspects of dealing with forming the search page. Uh, for Google Translate, it's used for whenever you speak into your phone and that recognition is done in the data center, there's inference accelerators that are helping with that. Mm. Is the implication then <clears throat> that you're using inference accelerators beyond uh, deep neural nets and to, you know, for traditional uh, machine learning as well? Uh, no, all those are all those deep are deep neural <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, yes, that's another wave that's been sweeping across many, many Google products and features yeah. in Google products and so on is we're using deep learning. Uh, you know, initially when we started looking at neural nets in our group in 2011, you know, a handful of, of production groups started, product groups started looking at, you know, how can we use them? So we work closely with the speech team, mm-hmm. with the image search team. Um, and, uh, with disbelief, our first software system, uh, that made it easier for teams to sort of start training neural nets for their own, uh, problems they cared about. Um, and so, you know, eventually 50 teams or hundred teams were using deep neural nets with the first, uh, system disbelief that we put together. Uh, and like many things, it kind of spreads organically throughout yeah. the organization because as soon as one team uses deep neural nets to solve a problem and another team kind of hears about it and says, hey, that sounds a lot like our problem. I wonder if we could try it for our problem as well. Then, And there's, you know, mailing lists where people can post questions like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm having trouble with this, and people will chime in. Uh, that's generally the way these kinds of things spread throughout Google. And so we have this kind of nice exponential looking curve of how many different deep learning models are used in production uh, across lots of Google products. I have a sense for, uh, on a percentage basis, uh, for example, how much of that uh, usage is, you know, what we traditionally associate with deep learning, you know, audio, video, image versus other uh, types of use cases? Um, I mean, quite a lot of it is in sort of more textual oriented applications. Mm-hmm. So uh, and in like... fact, you know, including text in that. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm curious um, more specifically if, if Google is, you know, in this time working with deep learning identified um, and, you know, productized, I guess, thinking about mapping, you know, non-traditional deep learning problems to the deep learning domain. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think our experience has been that for problems where you have sufficient data and sufficient computation, you can apply deep learning to a wide variety of problems, Mm -hmm. both kind of more perceptual kinds of things like speech and vision, but also natural language processing problems, Mm -hmm. kind of more structured prediction problems. Um, And in general, you know, it doesn't work perfectly on every problem, but the vast majority of problems we try these approaches on tend to work pretty well. Okay. So, uh, is there I, ever a problem in Google at Google for which you don't have enough data? Sure. I mean, we're there are definitely some. Like, if you want to predict if uh, a machine is failing, that sometimes you know you don't have that many examples of failed machines. So mm-hmm. uh, that's the kind of thing where you might have you know, less data than other kinds of problems. Kind of the anomaly-oriented cases. Yeah. One of the things that is a pretty useful general technique for what you might think of as non-traditional things is to take kind of discrete features. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like maybe you have some model that wants to use the country where a user is located. And you can actually put uh, discrete features into an embedding space. So similar to like the word to vec mm-hmm. model where you have discrete words and then you represent each one of those words by say a hundred dimensional or a thousand dimensional vector. And through the, the optimization process, you kind of nudge these vectors around in a super high dimensional space mm-hmm. so that similar things are kind of nearer each other yeah. in this high dimensional space. You can actually do that with more discrete things like the country where a user is located or whether they're on a... Uh, what kind of model phone they're on. Because uh, okay. maybe some phones have very big screens and people behave differently in how they use those than other kinds of phones. And so you can put an embedding vector on the model of phone and then kind of nudge 
uh, the point in this high dimensional phone or device space, okay. uh, nearer to ones that seem to behave similarly and, and other ones maybe form other kinds of, of, of clusters in, in this high dimensional space. Okay. And that's a pretty common technique we use across lots of different problems here mm -hmm. that is not really a research thing. It's kind yeah. of a more of a practitioner. Like if I'm trying to solve this kind of problem with a bunch of discrete features, that's something you might try okay. uh, using, but it's not like there's really a good single paper you go to to discuss this, except word devec kind of is, or things like that mm -hmm. uh, is representative of that, but it's not necessarily obvious that you can do this for non-words and non-language things, but mm -hmm. for all kinds of things. Okay. You know, if you had videos you're trying to recommend in some high-dimensional space, you can represent each video as a high-dimensional vector. Right, right. So... We were talking about the TPU and mm -hmm. uh, hardware acceleration generally. Do you have a sense for, you know, when you did your back of the envelope calculation, did you project out, you know, some number of years and and kind of get a sense for the percent of, you know, total compute at Google that will be dedicated to inference? Do you have a feeling for that? Um, I don't have and, a super and great feeling because we're still discovering – uh, training is certainly a big deal as well. So um, our first generation TPU was for inference because mm -hmm. that's both uh, was a more pressing need in 2013, 2014. Right. But also it's a simpler problem. You design a chip on a board and that's pretty much the extent of it. Mm -hmm. For training, that's a much sort of broader scale problem as a, at a systems level because you need to design both accelerator chips but also a much bigger scale system that connects those chips together mm -hmm. because unlike inference, it doesn't sort of scale just embarrassingly parallel where you just plunk in a bunch more cards. You actually right. need more compute than you can fit on a single chip for most training for large scale training problems. Mm -hmm. And then you need therefore to take a much more holistic systems view. How are we going to build sort of a much larger scale system that connects together a bunch of these chips with very high speed uh, interconnects. How can I, you know, have a software story that's easy to take a computation I care about and map it onto, say, a system with 64 or 256 chips and have that be sort of easy to use for machine learning researchers and practitioners without sort of getting into the guts of, you know, uh, them worrying too much about how to parallelize things across these, these uh, different devices. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a much bigger scale problem. And so the second generation that we tackled was a system for both training and inference and was much more holistic than a single chip. It's like these large scale TPU devices, which are four chips on a board. And then those are designed to be connected together into much larger configurations of 64 devices, 256 chips. There's a custom 16 by 16 mesh network that, uh, or toroidal mesh, actually, with wraparound links on either end. On um, the device or the broader on, system? On the whole broader the system. Level? So the whole system is like four racks in okay. size. Uh, looks really like a machine learning supercomputer. Uh -huh. um, and those are the kinds of things that we're now applying to much larger scale problems. And the reason we're doing that is because we see uh, continuing gains as you're able to tackle larger and larger problems. Mm. Um so, for example, the deep learning work that we rolled out to sort of completely replace the the old style phrase based translation system in Google Translate with a neural net right. um, is uh, impactful in many ways. So, one is that system uh, had been around for a decade. I actually helped do some of the early low level software for some parts of that system. Um, and it was a very complicated system in software terms. It had like five or six uh, different sort of uh, distributed systems in it. And then, uh, a bunch, you know, there's like a, a target language model that is spread across 100 machines where you do lookups of how often a bunch of five-word phrases occur. And that language model can tell you how often every five-word phrase in English occurs. There's an alignment model for how words in English and French align. Okay. And then there's like phrase tables and dictionaries and then 500,000 lines of code to glue all this together. Hmm. Um, so the new system is 
literally a TensorFlow model uh, with a neural machine translation model that we've published a paper about and is like 500 lines of TensorFlow. Wow. And just learns from lots and lots of data. And right. not only is the system much simpler, but the translation quality is much, much higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gains we saw from rolling, moving from the old system to this new system were equivalent or larger than the gains in quality improvements in the previous decade of working on improving the older system. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a sign of something can be dramatically simpler. And because it's learning from lots of observations, it can actually do a better job of the task you care about. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the way this gets back to TPUs is for some of the language pairs that we rolled this out on, we actually have a lot of data and we could only train on one sixth of, of the data we have. So we could only get through one sixth of the data once in the sort of time budget we'd set for each language pair. Okay. And that system supports, you know, roughly a hundred to a hundred other languages. So there's like 10,000 language pairs you need to okay. support. And so that's now on TPU two or was that before? Uh, that's now uh, training on on TPUs, and it's okay. actually uh, running inference on TPU v1. Okay. So, um, but but uh, before we had TPU v2 rolled out, it was training on lots of GPU cards. Okay. Do you see the TPU effort broadly kind of replacing GPUs at Google and kind of decoupling Google from a dependency on GPU suppliers? Um, I wouldn't. F- frame it quite like that. I would say, you know, because we're designing both the TPU and we have a lot of of machine learning researchers Mm -hmm. and also are building software to map these uh, sort of style models onto the TPU, we can have uh, sort of much tighter feedback loops in sort of doing vertically integrated decision making for, for what the future of TPUs should look like. But there's some things that TPUs don't necessarily do well that GPUs do extremely well. Uh, but the kinds of things that do run on TPUs, you know, we think are pretty interesting and compelling uh, from a you know, performance standpoint. One of the things we really crave is to make turnaround time for machine learning research experiments much faster. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, there's a qualitative difference as a researcher if you're fundamental experimental turnaround time is measured in, you know, an hour rather than a week. Right. Right. You just, it just feels very different. You can be much more productive. You can try more things out. It's not a big, you know, effort where you start up an experiment and then you've like forgotten what you've actually started by the time it finishes in a week. Instead, you try many more things. Uh, And so getting that time down just improves the productivity and the rate at which we can try out new ideas, which is really super important in this kind of new and emerging space. And is that an exercise in driving up teraflops as quickly as possible, or is it more nuanced than that? Uh, So it's a few things, right? One is obviously you want more raw teraflops, Mm -hmm. but also you want software layers that make it easy to use those teraflops, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to have to write complicated code in order to have a research idea you just thought of be mapped onto those teraflops. Right. So if you can make software tools that make it easy to express ideas that then can take advantage of, say, a whole TPU pod uh, relatively quickly, um, that's just generally going to be better. And mm. so it really requires work at all these different levels of the sort of hardware design stack, the software stack, the ease of expression for... Um, different kinds of APIs that you might imagine using for expressing machine learning computations. Mm. Are there a set of things that um, a set of tooling uh, that Googlers take advantage or that Googlers kind of take for granted that um, that you think that need to evolve, I guess, more broadly and be um, you know someone needs to provide in order for you know folks to take advantage of deep learning and be as uh, be able to iterate as quickly as Google does? Well, I think one of the things that we're uh, trying to do is to, uh, and, and part of the reason we decided we would open source TensorFlow, and so we sure. open source TensorFlow at the end of 2015, was we wanted the tools that we use to also be sort of more broadly available to the yeah. community and then have the community collectively 
work with us to improve those tools. Mm -hmm. And I think that has actually played out reasonably well. We now have tons and tons of people using TensorFlow. We have, uh, you know, obviously a smaller set of people working yeah. to improve the core set of TensorFlow APIs and algorithms and implementations, uh, but lots of contributions from across lots of other big companies, you know, lots of uh, smaller companies, people working on their own as hobbyists, um, really are are working collectively to improve those tools. And I think mm -hmm. that's that's really good because it gives you a common language for expressing machine learning computations mm -hmm. that is really useful to have ideas spread more rapidly through a community than they would if you relied on just publishing a paper and yeah. describing something. And when you do that, you necess by necessity leave out a lot of details, right? right. English is kind of a, a poor way of specifying exactly what to do. Right. Right. Um, and so by allowing people to share sort of working implementations or open yeah. source models that they care about, uh, I think you can get that spread that was happening already within Google of one team picking up what another team has done and trying out on their problem. I guess or I'm curious about like, you know, so look, TensorFlow, you know, today is, you know, in some ways, you know, look at what the way Google was thinking about this five years ago and what was missing five years ago, right? If you look at, you know, the way Google's thinking about it today and, and, uh, and, but, you know, we'll be still missing for the industry in five years. You know, what are, you know, what's the kind of the future of that software stack? This is a kind of a clumsy way of asking the question, but, you know, Google had Borg, you know, and then that turned into <clears throat> Kubernetes. You know, there was uh, Disbelief, which, you know, became kind of uh, publicized as TensorFlow or evolved into TensorFlow in, mm -hmm. in some ways. Uh, I'm imagining there's actually in the conversation with Ryan Poplin, you know, we talked about um, uh, a lot of the data augmentation pipeline that, you know, as a researcher, he just takes for granted. It's just there. Mm -hmm. um, I can imagine that being publicized or turned into open source code by Google or, you know, someone else. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if, if um, you know, we can kind of tap into your today as a crystal ball for, you know, what some of the gaps are in the software pipeline uh, that need to be figured out over the next few years to really make deep learning uh, allow folks to iterate more quickly. Right. So, uh, I mean, I think one of the things that's happening is people are open sourcing a wide variety of different tools built on top of TensorFlow or that mm -hmm. sort of run in phases and then you sort of run TensorFlow as as sort of the core computation engine. And I think mm -hmm. that's really powerful. Most of them are sort of particular things rather than a general framework that makes something different. Yeah. Uh, but they all add together because now there's this uh, really large community of different pieces and, and uh, building blocks that you can choose from when you're solving new problems. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I'm pretty excited about in terms of the research our group is doing is this notion of automating machine learning, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think even today with the explosion of interest in machine learning and more and more people are entering the field, um, there's still an incredible shortage of people who actually know how to take, uh, data and computation and have the expertise to then make a solution to a machine learning problem. Yeah. Um, uh, the way I like to phrase this is there's, you know, maybe 10,000 organizations in the world who are actually really practically applying machine learning in a production way to their problems and their their settings mm -hmm. and have hired people with strong machine learning expertise. But there's probably 10 million organizations in the world that have data in electronic form that could be used for machine learning and have problems that would be amenable to machine learning. Uh, one example is... Um, every city in the world should be setting their stoplight timing by machine learning, right? Mm -hmm. Like right now, they probably have two lookup tables. They have right. rush hour and not rush hour. Right. And you select among them via the time of day. Yeah. But you can imagine with a computer vision-based stoplight, you could just figure out, you know, are there cars coming in which direction? And, and uh, if not, turn the light uh, appropriately and maximize throughput of... Uh, cars through an intersection or through the collective set of intersections in a city. Mm -hmm. That's not something most cities are probably doing today. Some right. some are, but most of them are probably not. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I think we'd like, so the idea behind AutoML or meta learning is that you want to be able to solve new machine learning problems um, automatically without a human machine learning expert sitting down and saying, okay, I'm going to solve that in this particular way. And I think that's going to be a really promising and, and fruitful way to get machine more machine learning used in the world to solve problems that are, are important. Uh, what do you project the timeline or how do you see, how do you see auto, auto ML evolving over time? Yeah. So, you know, we're continuing to push on the research aspect of it. It's mm -hmm. obviously an ambitious problem to be able to take any problem and solve it automatically. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say what we have now is we can now solve problems in a set of restricted domains uh, automatically mm -hmm. and be able to take a new problem and automatically solve it in one of those domains. Can and you give me an example uh, yeah, of that? So uh, we actually have a launched uh, product uh, that we've jointly worked on with our cloud organization, Cloud AutoML, cloud AutoML mm -hmm. that initially can solve computer vision problems. Mm -hmm. And there's tons and tons of organizations that fall into the category I was saying where they have you know a bunch of images of things right. they care about. Um, the the sort of default image net model isn't exactly right for their problem. Okay. Uh, like they want to be able to identify is this a broken airplane part on their assembly line or a not broken one. Mm -hmm. So they have a bunch of images of that, some of which are labeled as you know broken propeller and some of which are labeled as you know not broken flange or something. Mm -hmm. And so you can take those image data sets and now automatically solve classification problems to high level of accuracy, much more than you can get just by doing transfer learning from, say, an ImageNet model that you've already trained. Mm -hmm. And that's already going to be useful for a pretty wide variety of, of, of companies and organizations. And broadening out the set of domains in which that approach works is something we're actively working on. You'd like to do this for language problems, for you know recommendation problems, speech problems, uh, a wide variety of these things. Hmm. Do you have a kind of a research taxonomy of AutoML? There's, um, you know, the neural architecture search. There's kind of meta-learning stuff. How do you think about the way the different pieces and the way they fit together? Yeah, I think, like, we started this investigation in, in our group uh, with the neural architecture search work. We've also been working on evolutionary approaches for uh, those same kinds of, of problems just mm -hmm. as a way of, of comparing several different approaches for tackling the same problem. I think that's often useful to ground work is what you're doing the right direction by, you know, trying out several approaches. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of other work we've been doing on learning things that are not just the architecture, but uh, things like learning new optimization update rules. You mm -hmm. know, traditionally you have SGD, which is a very simple update rule. You take the learning rate times the gradient and you add that to the parameters. Uh, but uh, And then there's things like SGD with momentum and Atom and Atagrad that have been developed uh, by humans uh, and seem to be effective for a variety of problems. Mm -hmm. uh, we, actually, we actually published a paper in our group on um, trying to learn optimization update rules, symbolic optimization optimization update rules and just gave it kind of the raw primitive things like the things that occur in the expressions for SGD and SGD with momentum and a bunch of other kinds of symbolic hmm. updates. And then it learned to stitch them together and it found sort of 15 different optimization update rules that are all better than all four of those really? sort of things. Interesting. Um, which is pretty interesting. And some of them had sort of common characteristics that you can kind of uh, get insight from. So that's Kind of and cool. how did how did you how did you represent that problem so that you could do it in a symbolic domain? Oh, so you just uh, uh, it, it's sort of similar to neural architecture search, except what you're spitting out is not an architecture, but a symbolic update expression for optimization. Okay. And so you give it a bunch of primitives and say, please spit me out a, a symbolic update rule that has you know no more than a depth of three in a symbolic expression tree or something. And then okay. you can search over plausible uh, symbolic update rules, hmm. including things like, you know, you accumulate the running average of the gradients or right. you you multiply by the learning rate or you, you know, divide by the uh, recent parameter updates or something. Huh. Interesting. Um, and so one thing it found was uh, 
an interesting rule of, I'm trying to remember the exact rule. It's like e to the sine of the current gradient times the sine of the recent running average of gradients. And so if those are the same, it's going to scale things by by that. And if it, they're different, then it's going to slow way down. Hmm. Um, so this thing basically just spits out your next 15 papers or something like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Although probably you'd take the best one and, and do that. But, uh, you know, it is interesting that the kinds of things that are if you have a problem that is automatable in this sort of searchable way where you have a clear reward function and some space to search over, mm-hmm. I think this this is more general than just how do you find machine learning sort of ideas, but scientific ideas more generally, if you can automate that process. Because what, what a scientist does is they run a bunch of experiments mm-hmm. and then they look at the results of those experiments and then they figure out what are the next experiments to run, mm-hmm. right? And so integrating the results of the previous experiment back into deciding what the next things are to run is generally a pretty slow process if there's a human in that interpretation loop. Mm-hmm. And so you can actually get a lot of benefit for real-world problems if you have a dis- sort of a, a clear reward signal mm-hmm. by essentially using reinforcement learning or perhaps evolutionary search to optimize that reward. Are you doing much with uh, with program learning? Have you published on program learning? We we do have a... I mean, you can think of neural architecture search as a very restricted mm-hmm. form of program learning. And the uh, optimization we're also, stuff you described as well. And the optimization well. stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also doing some more kind of more traditional symbolic uh, computer programming language mm-hmm. uh, synthesis work. Uh, we've published a little bit of that, but uh, not... It's sort of an early... Uh, emerging research area for us. We're pretty excited about it because we think it's got a lot of potential benefit to sort of provide tools for programmers to sort of take some of the work that is traditionally done by programmers that could be done in a more automated way and allow programmers to spend more of their time on the things that are sort of higher level, more difficult to to do and take mm-hmm. away some of the drudgery work that, that uh, programmers currently sometimes do. So yeah, where where do you think uh how would you characterize, you know, where we are and how that work evolves over time? Yeah, I mean, I would say we're pretty early in that work really mm-hmm. having real-world impact, but I think it's it's definitely an interesting direction because obviously mm-hmm. if you can if you can look at a problem and come up with an algorithmic expression of how to solve that problem, that's a pretty important and impactful thing, but we're very far from being yeah. able to do that in general. Yeah. Maybe circling back to TPUs, you know, what can you say about TPU V3? Like what what needs to be, you know, where does the work need to continue there? And, and what do you expect that the future holds in that direction? Right. I mean, I think one of the things about machine learning accelerator hardware is it's hard to really read the future out far enough in this very fast moving field. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at the, to give an indication of how fast this field is moving, there's this great exponential growth chart of the number of machine learning papers on archives since 2009 <laughs> or 10 or something. Uh-huh. It's gone from like a thousand per year up to 20,000 papers per year. Right. Right. So that's like almost a hundred papers per day being published in the machine learning field in, on archive, mm-hmm. which is sort of crazy, right? It's yeah. like an entire conference every day. Um <laughs> You know, obviously they're not all peer reviewed and so on, but mm-hmm. uh, but it's a very fast moving field with lots of people with different kinds of ideas and backgrounds coming into the field and bringing their perspective on how to solve problems there. Mm-hmm. And Have you developed yet the the deep neural net to summarize all those papers <laughs> off of archives so that a researcher could actually keep up? We are working on summarization, <laughs> but sadly it is not yet at the level where we can understand all the archive papers published today <laughs> and tell you which ones to look at. But that would be cool. Um, but I think that's an example of, you know, if you're starting to design a chip or a system for doing machine learning acceleration, you know, currently what we focused on is trying to make, um, low precision linear algebra super fast, mm-hmm. right? Cause that seems to be a basic building block that applies to nearly all the deep learning, uh, sort of algorithms and systems we've, we've looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of kind of interesting exploratory work in, very low precision kinds of work that have been sort of 
proven out on small scale problems in software simulation to show that in some cases you can make uh, 4-bit weights and 4-bit activations work. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if that worked in general across all problems you cared about, that would be pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And you might really sort of uh, bet on that in your accelerator hardware. I think the state of this is such that it's been shown to work on some kinds of problems on modest data set sizes. So more experience is needed before you really bet on putting it in as the only thing in your accelerator, right? Okay. Because your accelerator, if you design it today, sort of pops out of the fab and into your data centers a year and a half or two years from now, and right. then it has to live for three years. Right. So you're sort of wanting to bet on things that you're pretty comfortable are going to be important things for the two to five year time frame from now. Mm -hmm. And so that means uh, you can have some experimental things in there, but not sort of the whole chip being mm -hmm. experimental. Although I will say there's a bunch of startups now in this space that are, you know, essentially being funded by, by the VC community to try out ideas. And I yeah. think that's actually kind of cool because there's a lot of ideas being tried out in the startup space, some of which are likely not to be the best ideas, but are the experiments are being run. Yeah. And yeah. some of which may turn out to be influential and, and interesting and exciting and inform what we should do in terms of building sort of next generations of ML accelerators. Yeah, I've kind of posited that in a world where where deep learning, machine learning, enterprise general workloads are kind of shifting to the cloud over time, and all of the cloud vendors are investing heavily in you know their own hardware to accelerate their uh, their workloads. In part, I propose or suppose to kind of make sure they're not dependent on any particular uh, accelerator uh, vendor uh, in their supply chain. Uh, I kind of wonder what the you know what the future holds for you know these startups that are kind of going off on their own and building out these new accelerators. Like, who are their customers going to be? Mm -hmm. you know, what's your what's your take on that market and kind of how it shakes out? Well, I think uh, you know it's hard to say, and and I'm not in the business of picking winners in the chip startup space, <laughs> which is which is probably good. Uh, but I think you know obviously some of them might get acquired uh some of them will sell equipment to cloud providers probably cloud providers or to people who want on premise machine learning and not running their their compute in the cloud mm -hmm. um so i think there there's definitely avenues for them to be successful and mm -hmm. and it'll, it's just a little unclear exactly which of the ideas that are being tried out will be sort of good in terms of you know providing really high performance for general things or maybe there's some restricted set of models where one particular hardware vendor's thing is super fast, but it doesn't really run other things very fast. Mm -hmm. um, I do think part of this is driven by the fact that Moore's law speeding up general compute has basically dramatically flattened off in the last six or seven years. Mm -hmm. And so now we're at the point where a lot of the innovation is going to be on the computer architecture side rather than the just relying on the fab people to give us like smaller features and mm -hmm. faster transistors yeah. uh, every two years like they had been. Um, and so that will mean there's now this really wide open space. And the other thing is that now that we know machine learning computations, deep learning models in particular, are so applicable to so many problems mm -hmm. that previously when you were building like specialized hardware for a particular thing, you know, it would apply to a relatively modest part of all the computing you want to do. Right. 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 You might speed up a compression algorithm by having custom compression circuits or something, mm -hmm. but that's not actually that much of what you want to do. Generally. Right. Right. But now you have machine learning computations where it seems plausible. That might be a lot of what we actually want to run on computers, mm -hmm. say five years, 10 years from now. And so you can now build specialized hardware that doesn't just apply to like a little bit of your computation. It applies to everything, mm -hmm. a lot of it. And so that I think is pretty exciting because now general purpose accelerators apply to such a wide variety of things we care about. Speech, mm -hmm. vision, language, you know, all the things you can imagine computers really wanting to do. You know, most of them you can imagine machine learning tackling and you can imagine machine learning acceleration hardware being an important part of how you make that scale and, mm -hmm. and be fast. 
Mm-hmm. So your counterpoint is then that it's just that the market is going to be so massive or is so massive that uh, that there's potential opportunity for different approaches. I think so. And I think I would liken it to this, like a big Cambrian explosion of computer architecture again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now lots of ideas are being tried out mm-hmm. and it's unclear which ones will sort of uh, survive this Cambrian explosion, but many yeah. of them probably will. And that'll be kind of cool. Exciting. Awesome. Awesome. So to wrap up, uh, I'm wondering if there are, you know, one, two, three things that are, you know, core to the, the, the Google way of thinking about, you know, deep learning, machine learning, AI, or even the Jeff Dean way of thinking about machine learning uh, and AI that, you know, a lot of people don't know, but they should, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Yeah. Even better if they're not things that you talk about all the time. Like, you know, what are those, you know, what are those kind of hard fought, you know, lessons that, uh, you know, folks need to, to know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the things that has struck me a little is I was actually, I was preparing to give a talk at the National Academy of Engineering uh, last summer. And it turns out the National Academy of Engineering put out a list of, 14 sort of grand challenges, engineering challenges for the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty good list. It's like, you know, uh, uh, make solar energy uh, efficient and affordable, um, you know, uh, advance health informatics, a bunch of things like that. And I was struck by how many of those things seem amenable to machine learning being either key to solving or an important part of solving some of these problems. Even things that seem kind of somewhat a a field like more like chemical understanding or better chemistry. Mm-hmm. I think actually machine learning in the last few years has shown that it can actually be applicable to a lot of scientific problems, including better modeling of chemical uh, uh, dynamics and these kinds of things uh, and more rapid evaluation of materials and things like that. Yeah. So, uh, and we've been doing a lot of work on healthcare related problems using machine learning. And I think I'm struck by, the fact that a lot of these sort of core machine learning algorithms are going to have impact, not just in kind of computer science and machine learning, but because they're applicable to so many things across, you know, a really broad set of problems in society. Things like healthcare, you know, self-driving cars, obviously, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, material design. Uh, all these things, I think, are are pretty impacted by better machine learning and better machine learning hardware and and advances in this field. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. That's Mm -hmm. why so many people in the world are interested in this field, Mm -hmm. because I think it's going to do amazing things for the world. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Jeff or any of the topics covered in this episode, You'll find the show notes at twimlai.com slash talk slash 124. As you know, we love to receive your questions and feedback about the show, so don't hesitate to comment there. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.